Okay, so this is this is actually pretty good. We're gonna get um, Neil Copeland uh, here shortly. One, two, three, four, five. Eight. Neil Copeland shortly, and uh, we're gonna get uh, him up on um, rotations. We're doing specialty spotlight today, and um, you know it should be good. I'm gonna see if we can get Neil on, and then we're gonna have a nice conversation with a pediatrician and sort of figure out uh, all about that. Uh, in the meantime, I'm gonna do a little technical work here and see if we can make the, the roadcaster do its thing. I am waiting for uh, the time to really fiddle with Zencaster. I, I know it's going to be a better product. I just don't know how I'm going to implement it properly. And so um, hopefully I get that under control in the school year and we'll, we'll get going. In the age of COVID uh, and in Lean Six Sigma manufacturing and just-in-time delivery for supplies and logistics trains that seek maximum efficiency without appropriately or wisely planning for uh, natural disaster pandemics, et cetera, because it's always someone else's problem, right? Uh, in the minds of many Americans, um, FEMA is going to come in and save the day on any natural disaster. And one of the problems is, is that people don't understand what FEMA actually does. FEMA stands for the Federal Emergency Management Agency. It's not FELA, the Federal Emergency Logistics Agency. It's FEMA. Federal Emergency Management Agency. And that name should tell you something. FEMA's job is not to stockpile massive amounts of material for what-ifs and, and help to um, obviate the responsibility of healthcare corporations and other agencies to prepare for problems. That happens as a result of, uh, of, of, as a result of regulatory guidance, policy, etc., FEMA's job is when everything goes to heck in a handbasket and you don't know where to turn, that FEMA is a clearinghouse with resources of agencies that are available to help you, and they tell you how to do that. They tell you how to access that. So everybody thought when COVID started, well, where's FEMA? They always do this, and I don't understand why, because it's not like we don't have natural disasters and hurricanes and stuff. Anybody that's a public official that's had to deal with FEMA understands how this works, but for the vast majority of Americans, and this is a commentary on the, the woefully bereft civics instruction of this country, um, for the average American, they think that FEMA is the, the, the magic tree, that as soon as I need an N95, it's there. It's not. That's not how it works. It's not the federal government's responsibility in our system to anticipate the needs of municipalities and states and, and uh, local, more local uh, government, and that's by design. You don't want a centralized federal bureaucracy in Washington, of all places, trying to figure out what the people of, of San Antonio want or need at any given time. You want the people of San Antonio to do that. And so what the federal government's supposed to do is it's supposed to say, look, if, if everything hits the fan and you don't know where else to turn, come to us and we'll help you sort it out and get you to the right direction to get you where you need to go. That's what FEMA does. And if used properly, FEMA is a very useful agency to have around because they are networked into everything and they know where everything generally can be found. But that's, uh, it's, it's not time to, you know, when everything hits the fan to say, oh, FEMA will fix it. They'll run in and they'll fix it. They, they, they won't fix it either. It, that's not how they do. So for those people who are really interested in being administrators, um, I would encourage you that as you're... Um, fiddling around with whatever they fiddle around in the train and MHA, that you really take a course in logistics, that you really take a course in disaster management and planning, that you really 
learn about what's not going to be there and what might be there in the event that your institution is at ground zero in a major emergency. Um, it's, it's pretty important uh, to be thinking that way. COVID-19 is, among other things, the equivalent of theater war level logistics. And so those of us who've been in theater wars are pretty comfortable uh, working in this world. But this is why it's so important for doctors to be part of logistics and for doctors to be part of leadership. If you think that you're going to go to medical school, knock out your MBA and MHA, and then punch out of clinical medicine, you are doing a woeful disservice to your future physicians and people that you're ostensibly going to be leading because you don't know jack about anything. You need to get out there and get your hands and hands and feet dirty and and start working in the trenches to figure out how things really work. I make myself available to do shots and to do swabbing lanes. It's not my primary job, but I go do those things so I can watch and observe what it really takes logistically to do a, com a mass community testing lane. What are the pizza pieces and parts that go into that? If you never leave that office or you just look at your pieces of paper on the wall and say, I'm qualified to run a large hospital, you are missing the boat because you have no idea operationally what, what really is going on. You got to get down, you got to get in the trench, and you got to get dirty. Otherwise, you're going to be feckless, ineffective. You are going to be swimming around in a sea of confusion. And all it takes is from the time you start this process, taking advantage of every opportunity to get out in the field. Anyway, that's my soapbox for the day. I'm going to shut this recording off for a moment, and I'm going to see if I can get uh, Neil organized and we're going to talk about pediatrics today and I'm looking forward to it because I've been waiting to get a pediatrician. I couldn't get one on my own because they keep disappearing into the wind. So I'm going to use Neil Copeland and um, I think we'll have a good talk. Be back in a minute. Rotations is all about allowing interesting people the opportunity to share their opinions and ideas. Some listeners may find the opinions and the content expressed disturbing and or objectionable. This is Dr. Todd Fredericks, D.O., Associate Professor of Family Medicine at the Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine, and I cannot tell you how happy I am to be doing this interview today. I have for three years now tried to find a pediatrician that would talk to me, and all of our pediatricians on staff agreed at some point, and then they, then they disappeared, and they're just all over the place. One of them had a lot of medical issues, and she just wasn't able to help. But I finally found a pediatrician that said, I will agree to let you ask me questions. And I don't know if it's just a, if it's just a uh, nature of the specialty. Maybe they're timid creatures, and family, family practitioners scare them, or if they just don't like to do interviews. But today, I have Dr. Neil Copeland, who is a pediatrician who is from West Virginia, 
who is an associate and a friend and a colleague who agreed to talk about pediatrics. So I want to introduce Neil Copeland. Hello, Neil. Hello, how are you? I'm fine. And living in the age of COVID, we, we do this remotely, so we're doing it over uh, phone, which unfortunately, if you, if I had the opportunity, Neil, I'd have you at my home studio, which would be a lot nicer, but it's two hours probably north of you if you're in Charleston. So that would be a little inconvenient. But I really appreciate you agreeing to spend time answering questions today. Thank you. Great. Okay. No problem. Happy to. So, Neil, with all rotations interviews with specialists, we always start with the same question. So tell us about your background. Uh, sure. So uh, born and raised in West Virginia. Actually, I came from a, a more rural area of Wayne County uh, um, in West Virginia. Uh, born and raised, went to Marshall University, which is uh, one of the larger universities in the state. We have our northern larger brother, uh, Morgantown or WVU, which a lot of people have heard about. I did undergraduate in biology, then did dabbled in graduate school for an environmental science master's prior to attending medical school at Jones C. Edwards School of Medicine. And I think it was during medical school, me and a friend who uh, became a surgeon for the Air Force, we both joined the HPSP scholarship, which is a scholarship that enabled uh, medical school to be paid for by the military, and you would give them some active duty time back at a minimum. Uh, so after completion of medical school, I decided to specialize in pediatrics, where I completed my pediatric residency training and was chief resident my last year at Charleston Area Medical Center and West Virginia University uh, Pediatric Residency Program here in the capital of our state in Charleston. Uh, after those three years, I owed my active duty time back and went to a joint base, Elmendorf Richardson, that was a hospital in Anchorage, Alaska, uh, which was a, a really great uh, four years. After that, uh, wasn't ready to get out of the uniform, but my wife was ready not to move around as frequently as we would have as an active duty career. So we separated, and I went into the Guard as a flight surgeon and landed back in our home state in, in Charleston. Wow. You went everywhere. That's incredible. <laughs> like you, like Elmendorf, I mean, that, that's, that's Anchorage, right? That's in Anchorage, yeah. yeah. Anchorage, Alaska. Great, 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 great base for the Army and, and for the Air Force. Yeah, what was it like practicing up there? Did you, you, you did enjoy it? Yeah, so I, it was actually maybe the best place you could go outside of residency. So, and you know, you have a military background too, so you know if you go to some really big institutions, there tends to be a lot of upward leadership, which can dictate and change how you practice pretty frequently. You have, you have even more bosses than you traditionally have in a place. But Anchorage was remote, so being what was considered Oconus or outside the continental United States, it was a small hospital, and most of the uh, the other pediatricians that were there were within their first three years of residency. So we really got to come with lots of enthusiasm and really got to look at medicine and plan medicine and really a we-can-change-the-world mentality, which was great. Uh, there were a total of eight of us, eight active-duty pediatricians, and we had three mid-levels. And in addition to doing outpatient clinic, we also got to do nursery. They did delivery there, so we did nursery coverage, attended deliveries. We had an inpatient unit so we could admit our own kids to our own hospital and did, also did ER coverage for a consult. So we really got to go from doing everything as a resident to continuing to do everything as an attending, which was really fantastic, at least for a, to continue to develop your skills aspect. Yeah. Hey, Neil, what's the name of the hospital there? That's what they call J-Bear Hospital. So it's the... Uh, it's the uh, it's just, you know, it's just joint base... The medical group. But. Just joint base Elmendorf-Richardson Hospital? It's not named after yeah, someone? Yeah, it's called a J-Bear Hospital, J-B-E-R Hospital, Joint Base Elmendorf Richardson Hospital, yep. 
Oh, okay. Well, that's, that's awesome. And you did have inpatient, uh, inpatient capabilities there too. That's pretty cool. Yeah. They let us admit we didn't have a, we didn't have a pick you, um, or NICU, but we were able to admit kids frequently for the common stuff, osteomyelitis, uh, respiratory illnesses, pneumonias, urinary tract infections. We had rhabdomyolysis. So we were able to admit, uh, unless they required some specific specialty care that was outside of our uh, realm. At that point, we would have a nice, friendly conversation with the local uh, Providence Medical Center, is what they're called, and uh, they would accept our kids for PICU or uh, surgical cases that we, our general surgeons could manage. Man, that sounds really good. So, you know, we can go in maybe a little bit later about your work in the Air Force, but uh, and I, I think it's interesting because I, I just had a couple. I'm I'm the HPSP advisor at, at OU, and so I have a lot of young people that are interested in. You know, the three types of kids. One is I'll do six years or so on pace for medical school. The second group is I'll do six years or so on pace for medical school, but I also want to jump out of an airplane or or become a diver. I want to do some operational stuff. And there's a third group that says I want someone to pay for my medical school and I want to spend a career in the military. And so uh, you are in the process of actually even more time in the military with the National Guard. We might get into that. But did you like doing did you like practicing military medicine up in Elmendorf? Yeah. You know, I really thought it was fantastic. Uh, my, my last year, I was flight commander, so I got to dabble into the administrative side of medicine. But, you know, beyond just getting to do what you love, which is primary care, even if you're in family medicine, et cetera, you're seeing people in a primary care setting. You have, everyone has insurance, which is really nice. You're not really worried about how people pay for medicine, per se. And then you get to do the cool stuff. Beyond just seeing kids, I was able to go to Nepal and do a humanitarian mission. I got to spend four months doing pediatrics in Okinawa, Japan, uh, in Hawaii, in Thailand. So, I mean, just when, you know, the paperwork and the follow-up lab and, you know, delayed charting can kind of start to wear you down, something cool pops up. So, uh, it really just, I felt like checked all the heartstrings. You got to do humanitarian stuff and then help people that really needed help, you know, moving families that move around frequently and disrupt their natural support. So when you get to be that at least primary care rock for the family, it, it really adds an extra a level of satisfaction to the job. Yeah, that's awesome. And I should mention, um, I was told the other day by one of my uh, civilian colleagues that they, they thought that the term mid-level was a pejorative term. People need to know in the military, that is not pejorative for us. Mid-level is just simply a way for us to describe nurse practitioners and PAs. And it's not a negative, it's not, it's, it's completely... Um, objective in term in terms of its intent. It just says they're not a nurse uh, or a technician. They're not a physician. They're a PA or a nurse practitioner. And so, for those people who are listening that think <laughs> that maybe an advanced practice provider might be a great way for me to say that too. But I, I agree. It, everybody calls the mid levels. It's, it, it's shorter and fewer letters. It's easier for us to say mid levels, and we all know what we're talking about. That's the pragmatism of the military, right? <laughs> Every one yeah. of us. Every one of us, I have two, two, one in the process of becoming, one already a nurse practitioner. That's my favorite nurse practitioner. She's in the in the Army. And I have many PAs that I think very fondly of and I work hand-in-hand with, and I have tremendous confidence in their abilities. So don't take that as a negative if you're listening to this two military guys talk about mid-levels. Yeah. And, and, and we will say that the Air Force loves mid-levels, or not mid-levels, nurse practitioners so much that we made one our uh, general surgeon of the Air Force. So that's a big right. commitment to... Uh, to that practice, yeah. Yeah. Well, what got you interested in pediatrics, Neil? I mean, because, like, yeah, you, know, you know, the old statement is it's veterinary medicine, right? So, I mean, everybody says, well, you know, they, they can't talk to you. You kind of got to sort your way through them. What, why, why would you want to do that? You can't talk to your patients. So maybe you have a different take on why you want to be a pediatrician. Yeah, so I think 
I think the determining to be a pediatrician, especially at least in your first couple of years in medical school, can be intimidating. Actually, I wrote a letter on day one of medical school uh, to myself, which I forgot I wrote. And uh, when we graduated, they gave it to us. And I specifically said, I don't know what I want to do in medicine, but I know it's not pediatrics. I don't necessarily know what drove me to write that. I was actually really shocked when I read it and laughed. because I, I never remember feeling that way. But I do remember that sentiment maybe being reinforced. We would we did what's called uh, system-based practice. So everything was you did the pulmonology system together, the cardiovascular, the neurology system, and you learned all your pathophys and biochem and everything together. And then we'd have this one little wedge of classes, like the day before a test or two days before the test, that would do everything that we spent two or three weeks covering to just cover kids. So you felt like you got 95% of adult medicine, adult pathophys, and then you had to get this little wedge of pediatrics, which had exceptions to almost all the rules. And it really kind of threw a wrench in, I have all the stuff I need to relearn for this test. So I always kind of found, at least academically, when you're in classroom time, pediatrics to be the most challenging because we just got a little bit less of it. Now that flipped to, I was always kind of drawn to primary care or psychiatry. Actually, I thought I was going to go to psychiatry. And when I went into my pediatric rotation, I was really shocked how kind of, I don't want to say multidisciplinary a pediatrician needed to be, but you do a lot of mental health as a pediatrician because there's a lot of, there's a really lack of mental health services for kids. You do a lot of bargaining and interaction with the parents too. So you're not just, just treating the child. Really, the child's just a window into the family. So you not only do you have to make an accurate diagnosis to a kid that might not really be able to tell you how they feel or what's going on, but you also have multiple people that you have to almost bargain with, uh, whether it's uh, the mom who might be the primary decision maker and then the father who has a completely separate opinion, and then grandparents that completely disagree with both of them. So I really enjoyed the relationship building and the back and forth, and, uh, and then that multiple aspects of you had to kind of think of everything. Um, not only what medicine do you want to use, but is the kid going to be able to take the medicine in the formulation you gave, et cetera. And, and I thought that was neat. And then beyond that, it was the primary prevention. So, you know, when I spent time on family medicine, internal medicine, I saw myself treating or talking about hypertension and treating that. And I really felt like I was treating disease processes were already there. And I really love the idea of maybe preventing all of that. If you can do a great job at, at primary prevention in the pediatric population. Now, as you know, and a lot of people listen to this know, it's not easy to have people be healthy, but it can be simple things like having a child uh, properly or having a mom properly instructed to uh, use a child seat. And if they get in a car accident and the child isn't injured, that's great. You're not going to get a car in the mail or any flowers. But if the kid gets in a car accident and the mom didn't know how to put the car child in the car seat and they wreck and they have to have neurosurgery and the neurosurgeon saves their life, they get a lot of praise, but, you know, that's secondary prevention, essentially. They're really preventing the kid from having bad side effects from maybe bad preventative medicine. So I really like the idea of keeping people healthy through routine developmental uh, visits and um, bridging those and really forming those relationships over a really long period of time. Yeah, I would say, I you know, people, if you listen, I said veterinary medicine. I will tell you, I when, as a family practitioner, when I was doing more family medicine, um, Kids are my favorite. And the reason why I like kids is because kids are honest. They get sick quick, but they get better quick. They, they, you can usually read a kid. If they're in trouble, they're telling you through body cues, through language, through all sorts of things, something's not right. And 
I, I really like that. I like the fact that they're a population that needs good advocates because sometimes they don't have much of that at home, if any, and that they're honest and they, they just tell you, I, I, I can't remember a case where a kid just didn't tell me what was going on. And either just by their actions, you could tell they're sick. And I know a lot of people, maybe you've experienced it, Neil, a lot of uh, medical students are like, well, I don't know if I can deal with that. That, that you know, Kids freak me out or whatever. I'm like, why? They're, they're, they're either on or they're off. I mean, they're either sick and you can tell usually, or they're not sick and they're bouncing around playing. You know, I mean, it seems to me it's a, it's a pretty nice group of people to work with. I don't know what your feelings are on that, but that's always how I looked at it. And I loved having kids in my practice. Again, the hardest part of the kids were their parents usually. Like the kids were always pretty straightforward. It was the key parents that you kind of had to do a lot of uh, hand-holding with sometimes. But kids, I think, are awesome to work with. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Kids are great. And you're right, they get sick, but we're not really fighting coronary artery disease and chronic kidney disease and other vascular issues that really make treating just a regular pneumonia for the most part. Right. Now, of course, you, know, you can have kids with bad hearts and, and uh, kidney disease in and of itself that makes it more complicated. But for the most part, they just need to keep on course and they're going to be healthy and do excellent. And they just need someone to help guide them to make those smart decisions or when they're sick, make those smart uh, treatment choices uh, to allow them to, to really maximize their overall health, not just today and tomorrow, but really for the next 70, 80 years. Yeah, building foundations. Well, Neil, can you get a little bit more elaborate about how you got into residency and what that involved? Uh, what does a pediatric residency look like, and how did you actually get into one? Yeah, so you know, entering into the match is going to be very similar, especially now that our EO and ND programs have integrated. We're all going to go through a system that has you submit a personal statement, so basically who you are and why do you love what you love. Mine obviously was geared towards loving pediatrics. Um, you're going to provide some letters of recommendations, at least three, hopefully one of them is from your, your dean and the department chair of the department. That does help. Uh, I think as far as letters of recommendations, and I know that this isn't solely talking about um, entrance into residency, but it's really important to ask people that you think will honestly be able to write about you in a more intimate way. Every dean or every department chair has a pretty canned uh, personal statement and some people think that having the title of the person write it is better than the individuality. But being an associate program director of our pediatric residency program, I read a lot of uh, personal statements and the letters of recommendations. And the more personable one, the one that the writer really knows you, is always hand down, hands down the better one. Uh, after you submit all of that, you're going to really send the application electronically to lots of programs. And um, then those programs are going to look you over, and they're going to look at a lot of different things. They're going to look at your, for medical school students, it's uh, step one or step two scores. For you all, I believe it's COMLEX. For DO students, it's going to be COMLEX scores. They're going to look at your uh, transcripts from your medical school. That's not necessarily the most important thing, but it's one thing we look over. And then, of course, your personal statements. And then they're going to kind of subjectively have some type of cutoff where they throw out an initial set of applications. Um, and things that really stick out, again, are really personal letters or recommendations, but, of course, really good scores on your your uh, step one or your complex one. New changes are that step one is going to go past fail. I don't know if the complex is going to do the same thing. So we stop focusing so much on the number because you can be incredibly smart and test really well and not be a good bedside doctor and not be a great clinician. So uh, we're trying to go away from looking at people as numbers, but um, those are things that kind of help you get as much access to residency programs. 
once you get accepted for interviews, interviews are going to be very different, but you're going to meet a lot of doctors and you're going to meet a lot of residents. And you're really going there. If you get accepted for an interview, they like you on paper, at least. Now you got to go and show them that you're really interested in the program and that you kind of feel like that area would be good for you to live in. Residency is stressful. Pediatric residency is a three-year program, and you're going to get in your intern year and um, your second and third year and rotate through inpatient, inpatient pediatrics, NICU, which is a neonatal ICU, pediatric ICU, surgery, procedures, anesthesia, ER rotations, developmental behavioral. So uh, it is a busy three years. Most people feel like it would be a little lower key, but there's just so much information. Same thing with family medicine. There's just so much information to swallow on your specialty in those three years that it really is a, a busy 60 to 80 hours per week, essentially no matter where you're at. After it qualifies you to sit for the board, so you're not a board-certified pediatrician yet, you still need to take your organization's board certification. And then the, I think the osteopath, American Osteopathic Society, I, I probably butchered that, they have their own pediatric certification that you can take if you're a DO student. But also the American Board of Pediatrics, um, ADP, has one also. And either one of them will work fine. After you sit down for their test, which they tend to give once a year, then you can say you're a board certified, which just certifies that you have passed a, a test that at least guarantees a minimum amount of knowledge of your robustness robustness in that skill set. Yeah. I think that's a great way to segue into this next question. The reason why I asked the next question is because um, every time you talk to a specialist, and I look at I look at pediatrics probably a little bit differently than you. I don't look at pediatrics as primary care. I look at it as specialty care for children. And that's probably a bias for me as a family doctor. And the reason why I do that is, and I know there's different types of pediatricians too. There are pediatric subspecialists, obviously. There's also pediatricians that still do a lot of inpatient care. Um, And frequently, those would be the pediatricians that I would be calling that if I had an asthmatic kid who exacerbated that I wouldn't feel comfortable admitting that child on my own, where I would an adult probably, and I would consult them and say, would you be willing to admit this child for care? And that's how, that's how I've always looked at pediatricians in the sense of them as a specialty. And the reason why I asked the next question is because if you're one of those pediatricians that gets consulted on or consulted by other doctors, especially family physicians, um, I'm really, imp- really concerned about over-referral and defining the specialty. So this is the first question is, is what are the top 10 diagnoses of senior practice? If you can kind of ballpark that, what is, what is it? What are the, cause top 10 usually care, takes account to about 98% of what a person sees in their practice. And then what are the five conditions that you see in practice that you think a family physician should be treating that doesn't need a pediatric specialist to support that? Sure. Does that make sense? Sure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. So, I think our bread and butter uh, diagnosis um, for pediatrics would be like sinusitis, which is probably the same in family medicine, upper respiratory infections, uh, urinary tract infections, different degrees of developmental delay, uh, failure to thrive, uh, pneumonia, uh, skin and soft tissue infections, osteomyelitis, um, fever in a neonate, and then there's derm. There's a ton of dermatology in pediatrics. Uh, kids get lots of different rashes, so... Uh, if you if you just put rash on there, because there's a lot of them, that would be one of them. I think as far as things that, you know, especially as a hospitalist and previously a general pediatrician, the things I feel like um, I encounter where they had maybe a non-pediatric specialist and the care was not necessarily mismanaged, but not as laser focused as it should have been, it's failure to thrive. I think 
there's a lot of really great articles. If someone's listening to this and want to look them up, uh, sometimes they're behind paywalls, so you might have to go to your university library. But failure to thrive is a very tough diagnosis, and it doesn't necessarily need a shotgun approach, but kids tend to get a $100,000 workup usually for a, a $10 problem. Um, so spending a little bit of time reading a couple articles would really help any specialist that doesn't do this routinely. Um, developmental delays, another one, uh, I, I commonly see kids that transitioned in the military or are admitted to my hospital unit, and they're in a kind of a general practitioner's uh, clinic. Uh, I'm always shocked to discover the level of delay they have and that they've not been connected to a, a physical therapist, speech therapist, or an occupational therapist. So a lot of times the parents are defensive to those things, but in pediatrics we know once it's identified, the earlier intervention, the better the outcome. And we don't say, oh, let's just wait. My kid didn't start talking until they're four, so let's give them some time. And that's generally always the wrong answer. So being aggressive when, when kids start to track a little bit behind in one of the gross motor, fine motor, um, uh, speech and uh, social skills is, is really important. Uh, it, it might be funny, but otitis media with effusion. So a lot of times kids get treated, especially at a young age, for ear infections when it's just ear fluid in the ear. Uh, and there's really great guidelines on when those should be referred ear tubes. Uh, sometimes I think speech delays have already set in and they're under-referred to ENT or they're referred after the first ear infection. So we don't want to over-treat and, and add surgical procedures on kids if we don't need to, but we also don't want to ignore that they're just going to grow out of the ear infections, especially if it's, it's maybe degrading their ability to understand speech. Um, sinusitis, acute otitis media, pneumonia is all three diagnoses that have a common denominator of uh, streptococcus pneumonia. I classically see uh, those three diagnoses undertreated with amoxicillin. Most people will do the strep throat dose, 45 milligrams per kilogram, instead of the high-dose amoxicillin that's required. So these kids get recurring infections because they're not appropriately treated. Or they end up in the hospital with pneumonia because they were under-treated with amoxicillin. And the last one would be developmental dysplasia of the hip. Um, that is a screening. That is a, that is a diagnosis that is really, really often maybe under-diagnosed at early age when it's most critical. And that's because there's a special procedure called an Orlanian Barlow, which is a hip maneuver. And you have to do a ton of those, actually to get really comfortable. And I think it's hard to do that volume in most traditional residency programs that aren't pediatrics because you just don't spend as much time in the nursery that we do. Um, but I, I feel like I see kids that are limping and they're two and, uh, and they just wasn't identified appropriately uh, at an early age. So those probably five diagnoses would one that are easy reads, but high yield. Neil, I'm going to ask you a, a more technical uh, question about that. Is that is, is hip dysplasia, because I've done a ton of Ortolani and Barlow's maneuvers, uh, especially working yeah. with receiving children in a nursery and, and doing initial baby exams and well-child checks and stuff at early ages. Neil, is there a role for ultrasound in looking for that diagnosis? So now when I think a point of, of care ultrasound is what I'm talking about. Yeah, so, so there is a new thought, unless you have a frank dislocation. Mm. So if you have a frank dislocation or you relocate the hip, in a maneuver in the nursery, you're just actually the recommendation is just to send an ortho, let ortho decide if they want a new imaging. And if you have any abnormalities, clicks or clunks that might show hip instability, um, you repeat that exam at the two week visit. And if there's still abnormalities, you get an active range of motion um, ultrasound. Now, what's hard about that is that it's very technician dependent. Mm -hmm. So you don't want to just do that at your local facility or imaging center if they don't do a lot of those. That, that's one of the few times you really feel like. Uh, 
maybe driving a little farther for your uh, imaging is really important because you want the radiologist and the ultrasound technician to be comfortable doing this procedure so they can do active range of motion and really look for that femoral head and acetabulum to have really good close contact. We like to do that ultrasound if you're not definitively sure, again, if it's not a dislocation or relocation, but you're trying to roll it out, that could be done around four or six weeks. Uh, four weeks is a sweet spot. You can do it up to six weeks. And in that two, in that time frame, um, a, an ultrasound is great because you don't have enough calcification in the head of the femur for an, ult- for an x-ray to be really good. You want an x-ray and you don't catch it early on and or you get a kid into your practice after they're kind of in the neonatal period, then an, ult- an x-ray at um, six months would be appropriate. Yeah. I am an ultrasound zealot at, uh, and especially at, at point of care is I'm, I'm always looking for ways that we can expand that scope in the general practitioner yeah. to say, I've got and, and, an iPad and, and I've got a butterfly. Can I look at a hip? But it sounds like it's, it's still sophisticated enough that if you have a suspicion, just do the maneuver. And if you hear something funny or feel something funny, just have an orthopedic specialist, take a look at it and see what they think. If it's a very abnormal sound or feeling, then having an orthopod, especially after the two-week appointment, see it. If there's some question, um, then obviously an, an active range of motion ultrasound would be really good. You also don't want to do that ultrasound too soon because there is elastin. It's a it's a kind of hormone in women, and it can cross the placenta and make your, your kind of joints a little bit more lax. So you can get a false positive if it's done too soon. Yeah. Well, listen, as we end the first segment, what are the current developments in your specialty that you have seen as of late that people should be aware of things that are, you know, that that you say, wow, that's something that's new about my area of medicine that I just didn't have five years ago or 10 years ago. Anything like that? Yeah. So one of the newest trends is not really necessarily new. The American County Pediatrics has been trending towards this, but we recently uh, developed a new specialty pediatric hospitalist. So Pediatrics is really big into quality improvement and, you know, QI-based practice and maintenance certification. I'm not saying other specialties aren't, but the AEP really loves that stuff. So they've launched uh, a new realm of medicine where instead of just being a general pediatrician and taking care of kids in a hospital setting, in pediatrics, it's actually hard to get research because most people don't want active research done on their children. If you can imagine, hey, do you want this experimental drug or this experimental procedure or I hold off on giving your kids antibiotics to see if they would get better without antibiotics. It's, it's, it's kind of a challenge to get enrollment into studies. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the stuff that we do in the hospital traditionally has been based off of kind of uh, taking that information from adult studies and applying it to kids and see how it turns out retrospectively. Uh, so they said, wow, we really need to do more research in this. And not only do we want to do more research, but we want to train people to do this specifically. So they launched a whole new uh, subspecialty to train individuals, general pediatricians, to focus on that quality improvement, evidence-based standards of practice, how to do research in a hospital setting so we can maximize the knowledge and the shared knowledge to maybe take even better care of kids than we currently are, standardize that research aspect of it. That's pretty awesome. Yeah, see, so it it make you it, it'll broaden the broaden the field of of pediatrics in terms of literature. Then, as people become more comfortable with uh, with looking at those things and finding best practices, I, I suspect. Yeah, yeah. Anytime there's a fellowship involved in pediatrics, and it's a two year fellowship typically. Some are some are still one. Most of them are two. Some of them are even trending towards three. And there's a heavy research component to that. So you'll see a lot more uh, generation of evidence based. Uh, standards and opportunities for data 
uh, sets to be collected so we can really just continue to improve the care that we provide. Okay. Well, that's a good, that's a good place to end the first segment, Neil. You good with going to a second one then? Sure, it's great. Okay. Well, then I'm going to thank you at this time. I'm going to thank uh, Dr. Neil Copeland, who has been gracious enough to agree to participate in this interview. And and uh, for those of you who are interested in, uh, of course, uh, commenting, you can always comment. You can actually comment on my Facebook page if you wanted to. If you're nice about it, you can you can get me at TR Fredericks on Facebook. You can also go to uh, Rotations uh, PCAST um at uh, on uh, Twitter, and um, you can also all go through at, at Media and Medicine as well, and that would be that would be all fine. And uh, certainly, if you ever had any questions, then you said, "I don't know what I don't know. I want you to ask this." Then ask me, and I will come back and I'll do an errata episode where I ask people like Dr. Copeland say, "Hey, I, I was I was an idiot. And I didn't ask the question. So would you answer this question?" So with that, I'm gonna sign off and let you guys uh, get back to your week. And uh, next week, we'll have a second episode with Dr. Neil Copeland. Thank you. Rotations is the weekly podcast of all things medicine and science as part of the media and medicine family of medical storytelling. The opinions and comments expressed on Rotations do not reflect the official or unofficial positions of the Ohio University, the Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine, or the Scripps College of Communications. Guests on Rotations are interviewed in an unopposed fashion so their ideas and opinions can be freely expressed. This episode of Rotations was produced by Todd Fredericks. Rotations is co-hosted by a league of champions of all things medical and a few people we sometimes pull off the street. Rotations is copyrighted, and while we welcome citations, tweets, Facebook likes, and other endorsements via word of mouth and social media, we reserve the right to all content. You may use Rotations content under provisions of Creative Commons, but you cannot alter or edit the content in any manner without express permission of the content creators. You must cite Rotations as the source of any content derived from the podcast. We welcome any comments, and you can contact us by tweeting us at Medical Cinema for Todd, at Prof Plow for Brian. Nisarg Bakshi for Nisarg Bakshi and at Rotations PCAST or by visiting mediaandmedicine.com slash rotations. Check us out on Facebook at Media and Medicine. And finally, from me, Todd Fredericks, you can also send me a message through my Facebook page at TR Fredericks. But please, I have a sensitive feelings, so embrace your inner non-hater.
Thank you.